Hello, friends. Today's guest on the podcast is Bill Ramsey. Bill is a professor of philosophy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And at 59 years old, he is still climbing 514 while balancing a full-time career. We talked about his recent ascent of Jumbo Pumping Hate, his most recent 514 up at Clark Mountain. We got pretty deep into his training and why he thinks the tread wall is one of the most underutilized training tools for root climbers. We also talked about building and training on replicas and how Bill used replicas and made his own holds specifically for jumbo pumping hate. We also talked about his fingerboarding routine and why he still does fingertip pull-ups as well as finger ups, which is an exercise he describes in the interview. We talked about his coffee addiction, his two-part climbing career, which included early development at Smith Rock and the Red River Gorge, favorite articles he's written, and the crossover he's noticed between philosophy and rock climbing. Bill mentions Alan several times in this interview, and he's referring to Alan Watts. If you like this interview, I highly recommend you check out the interview I did with Alan in episode four of the podcast. It's one of my favorites, and I think many of you will like it, and I think you'll like this one. Bill's awesome to talk to, and I learned a lot. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Bill Ramsey. I did not eat breakfast. Okay. More like Alan. I don't fast one day on and one day off, but I do often have just kind of one big meal a day. Okay. Kind of snack a little bit during the day. How long have you been doing that? You know, you realize that your metabolism really slows down as you get older. Uh And I just couldn't keep the weight off that I wanted to keep off by eating normally. Certainly couldn't do it eating three meals a day. But I like having a big meal. And so I'm just like, okay, I'll just have one meal. And I don't really get hungry typically during the middle of the day. I mean, again, as I kind of snack a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's fine. And I can usually stay fine through the day. I don't feel lightheaded or weak or anything. I feel like I'm, you know, if I eat a big enough meal, I'm still digesting it for most of the next day. Huh. And so I can totally see what Alan was talking about, about one day on, one day off. Cause yeah, if you, if you, you know, quite a bit, you're going to be digesting that for a while. The metabolism is not burning that fast. <laughs> you don't, I don't have a repair team working on making muscles bigger. That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> do you change your approach to eating on climbing days or training days? Uh, what I usually try to do is the day, the night before, I'll eat a light meal. And usually it'll be kind of carb intensive. Okay. So whole grains like wheat, you know, pasta, rice, something like that. Uh-huh. Mix in with some meat, chicken, something along those lines. And then uh, after a big training day or a big climbing day, then I'll try to be have a little more protein intensive. Okay. Yeah. Fish, chicken, occasionally red meat. Um, yeah, I just listened, I re-listened to an, an episode that you did with Neely. Right, training exactly. Beta, and you yeah. mentioned that every once in a while you had a big steak and you felt like that. Yeah, there was something about, there's something about the red meat and the steak. I don't know if it's the iron in it or something, but sometimes I feel, I can, it seems like I can tell the next day. Huh. I feel like I've just got a little bit more energy. Okay. May all be placebo, but... <laughs> so you, you're kind of known for these legendary massive training days that you do? Yeah. How do you fuel on a day like that? Well, I'll fuel throughout the day. Generally, when I'm climbing and I'm doing a big training day, I sort of try to get my calories through liquid because okay. I feel like it's easier to digest. So I'll make up a protein shake, and but often put in some carbohydrates too. Okay. So I'm kind of getting quite a few calories just through various drinks. Okay. And um, that's usually pretty filling. 
And so I'll just, but I, but I don't like climbing and I don't like training feeling full. Mm. I like feeling pretty light. So I'll just kind of be taking little bits of it throughout the day, okay. basically. And that usually seems to work pretty well. Gotcha. Are you still doing some of those days where you start at five in the morning and end at 9 p.m.? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, that maybe is a little extreme. Um, those are kind of rare and few and far between. Uh, but, I, you know, I, it's kind of like what Alan was saying. You know, I find that it takes so long for me to recover now that it sort of makes sense just to try to pack everything. I mean, it also takes a long time to warm up and get ready to go. So I find it much better as you get older to do bigger training days and then take more rest days than it does to try to fit in three or four training days that are shorter. Mm. I don't feel like I recover in 24 hours. Even if it's, even a, if it's a short session, even if it's a short session, okay. I don't feel like I really recover fully. Huh. And um, I really feel like I need that time off. But I still want to have a pretty good workout in. Uh-huh. And I can go pretty big. And so I do that. I mean, originally, the way it started was... I'm a bit obsessive about these things, and so I'd have my routine, and then I'd hear about something new that somebody had just developed, like, oh, system training, this sounds like a great idea, or campusing, you know, I mean, there was once a time when, I can remember when things like campusing came into existence, <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, and so I am thinking, oh, you know, I need to add that in, but I don't want to subtract anything, it's kind of like, it's kind of like how some science and engineering programs, they don't... They get new information, but they just keep building up the curriculum, uh-huh. building up the requirements instead of replacing things. And that's kind of how I was. I didn't want to replace anything I was already doing. So I'm like, okay, I'll just add that on. And, you know, that, so that's another hour or so. And then it's like, oh, I'll add that on. And after a while, it seems like these days were getting really huge. Uh-huh. And I kind of developed this when I was climbing at the Red. And I, I felt like I needed a couple of days off to do climb on Saturday. So my schedule would be I'd train pretty hard Tuesday night. And that would mostly consist of power. When was this? This is when you this were in is Notre probably, Dame? This is probably, yeah, this is when I was at Notre Dame. This is in the early 90s, okay. like early and mid 90s, all the way through like maybe 2007. Mm-hmm. So I'd train pretty hard on Tuesday evenings, focusing more on power, fingerboarding, bouldering. I'd by this time bought a house and built a climbing gym in the attic of the house. I would do some campusing and a few other strength-oriented things. And that, would, that session would probably last, you know, four or five hours that evening. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I wanted it to be more endurance oriented. Notre Dame had a tread wall that I'd encourage them to purchase. Okay. <laughs> and so I would have this whole big program I did the next day, Wednesday, on the tread wall. And that session would probably go from like eight o'clock until one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd do some weightlifting then. And then I would just take Thursday and Friday off. And I felt like that program worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. Once I moved out here, I didn't have to climb only on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, then what I could do is I could just combine those evening morning sessions into one big day okay and that's sort of how i did it okay so uh, as i told somebody i sort of i I believe in the periodized training i just do it all in one day yeah (laughs) like okay we'll start out with morning sessions power oriented and maybe a little power endurance in the middle and then some more you know art or stamina training endurance in the afternoon yeah and uh you know that's not for everybody and i would say probably the scientific evidence suggests that it's not the best way to go but I do think someone should keep it in mind as something to just try every mm-hmm. now and then, just to kind of shock the body a little bit, okay. get it out of a routine, and uh, kind of push a little bit harder. One advantage to it that I've noticed is your body develops that kind of stamina where you can go all day. Yeah, I've, mentioned, I've heard you mention that you, you're more likely to climb something on your fourth or fifth try of the day than a lot of your peers. Than a lot of my peers. I, I wouldn't say I'm more likely to do it on my fourth <laughs> or fifth try, but uh-huh. I, I have noticed that I'm still performing towards the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I still have a shot at doing something. Okay. 
Whereas people, other people, they're maybe in their fourth hour of climbing. They're kind of done. Yeah. They're, they're okay, well, now we're going to back off and do easier things. Yeah. So if I'm projecting, it's kind of nice to have that one extra burn on that where you can actually, you know, have a shot at doing something. Yeah. I think when I was getting towards the end of doing Jumbo Pumping Hate, I was giving it three burns a day and I was starting, and I was doing pretty good on my third burn. And that's a 14 day epic Clark. Yeah, that's a 14 day epic Clark. And it's a huge route. Yeah. It's really taxing and just getting up there is kind of an epic too. Right. So those are big days. But uh, yeah, I felt like I had gotten my overall body fit enough to be able to handle that kind of stamina that you need for that day like that. And it it was a a bit of an advantage. Uh huh. So, especially I think as people get older, you need more rest days. I think it's not a bad idea to have a day that you... And also, it just happens to work out well with my, my career. Uh-huh. I feel like it's, it's harder for me to have days where, I'm okay, I'm climbing part of the day, and then I'm working part of the day. I can do that, but generally, I feel like, no, this chunk of time, I, I'm just going to focus on training, mm-hmm. and then the next day, I'm just going to focus on working, mm. and it just seems to work better that way. Okay. So we just kind of rolled right into it, but there's a few things I want to go back to, actually. Okay. Um, the first one, actually, is coffee. Yeah. I know that's a very important part of your day to day routine. Yeah, uh, it's pretty hilarious. How, how do you make your coffee? That's pretty funny. I don't know if I told you this, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I used to have a coffee maker down here. I'd have it timed and everything. And I, you know, but damn, that required getting up out of bed and walking <laughs> down the stairs. That's a lot of work early in the morning. IV drip now? <laughs> well, it's close. I just have a coffee maker right next to my bed. And I just kind of, I can get up enough strength to roll over and turn it on. <laughs> That so, sounds like an amazing way to wake up. Yeah, it just is. the aroma. And I can just, I can just lay there. Okay, now I can get the cup out. And nice. it works pretty well. It's been really creepy and weird, though. It's an automated <laughs> coffee maker. And it does have a clock on it, but I haven't set it up. But the last like couple of weeks, there have been mornings where it just comes on automatically at about the right time. Oh, my gosh. It's bizarre. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if there's a ghost there or what the hell's going on. But it's serious. But no, it's, that, that, okay, I can, ha- I can lay there in bed, have a couple cups of coffee, you know, pull over my laptop, you know, check what's going on, see uh-huh. if the world's come to an end or anything. And, uh, and then I'm like, okay, I think I can get out of bed now after a couple of cups of coffee. <laughs> Is that pretty common? Do you have your first couple cups in bed? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. And you're, are you reading, reading the news? I'm reading the news. I'm okay. usually going online. I've got my websites that I go to just to kind of okay. check. I mean, it's so nice having a laptop. You just you, you don't have to, you have to get out of bed to start working. Uh-huh. You just pull it over and you just start working and you start checking out what's going on. And yeah. It works pretty well. Nice. Is that usually a positive way to start the day or is that ever a trap? <sighs> Who knows? I mean... I generally feel pretty comfortable getting out of bed eventually. Um, I mean, maybe there'll become a point where it, it just is like, you know, I don't really need to get out of bed at all. But uh, in general, oftentimes, try again tomorrow. oftentimes after a couple of cups of coffee, I have to go to the bathroom. And so that gets me going pretty good. So um, probably more information than you need there. Nice. But uh, yeah, no, I think that works pretty well. Nice. Okay, so the next thing you're talking about this kind of slowly evolving training, you know, this uh, massive training regimen that you had. Would you ever go back and change that, or do you think that worked well for you to keep adding things? I think it worked well for me. Okay. I mean, I had this kind of two-stage climbing career. Right. So I started climbing in the 70s with Alan, and we didn't really know much about training then. We didn't really understand things. I mean, we understood that, oh, it'd be really helpful to not get pumped and not fall off and have stronger fingers. Uh But how to get fit for those things, we really weren't that knowledgeable. Okay. Um, It wasn't until Dale Goddard's book came out, and I don't know when that was exactly performance rock climbing. Yeah, I'll link to that the one in the People show actually were putting some real effort into figuring out how to train for rock climbing. Mm-hmm. But I had, I'd always liked the idea of training for climbing. Um, I'd been an athlete in high school. 
And I'd done some sort of self-coaching in high school. We had this thing called the Marine Corps Physical Fitness Test. Yeah. And uh, I was actually pretty good at that. I think I had the highest score in the country my senior year. Huh. And, um, and that was all a matter of self-coaching, I know. What, what drew you to that? Uh, I was good at it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I hated it, actually. Really? It was just drudgery. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were you just competitive? I was really competitive. Yeah. And it was part of our PE the class in freshman year, but I, our high school had always done pretty well on this thing. We there were these statewide competitions, and for the little tiny town of Madras, we would kick butt on those Portland big schools, and huh. it was pretty. It was something we were proud of. So there was a kind of history of it at our high school. Is and there my like freshman a year, went, of you. What's that? Is there like a plaque or a statue? There actually here? is. Yeah, <laughs> right something on there. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. Um, I was pretty good at it. I could tell I could do more pull-ups than most people. I could do more push-ups. And so I just kept working on it. I was on the team. And then by the time my senior year was around, I had the best score of anybody I'd ever had, I think, certainly hmm. from our high school. And, and it turned out I think that was the best score um, in the country that year. Wow. It was an intense thing. It was, it was 100 sit-ups. You had two minutes to do 100 sit-ups. And uh-huh. it had to be perfect. Like the Marine Corps was counting. And, and if, if you were not doing it perfectly, like 39... 39, 39, you want to just punch the guy. It's so annoying. But he wouldn't tell you what you were doing wrong. Okay. So you'd wind up usually doing about 105 sit-ups in two minutes. Then you had a two-minute rest. Then you had to do 60 push-ups, two-minute rest. Then you had to do 30 pull-ups, two-minute rest. Oh, my gosh. Standing broad jump for 100 points there, you had to standing broad jump nine feet, 10 inches. Whoa. Which is quite a ways. And then the final two, like another two-minute rest, the final thing was um, this 300-yard shuttle run. Or maybe it was a 100-yard shuttle run. I can't remember. Okay. But, uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was hard. Um, I threw up, I think, every time after I did it. <laughs> but I was pretty good at it, and I realized I could get better at it by training, so I started training myself huh. for that. And part of what really kind of attracted me to climbing was, you know, I like that process. I like going through that process of being kind of a self-motivating coach. But I knew I was going to be leaving high school athletics, and I was not good enough at anything to do anything at the college level. So I wanted there to be an activity that I could continue pursuing, mm-hmm. and that was part of what attracted me to climbing. Mm. But the problem was we just didn't know how to train for climbing. So then, second half of my career, my second part of my career, when I'm at Notre Dame, all this new information is out there about how to train for climbing, and I'm really missing it. I'm like, man, I wish I hadn't left climbing. This is so cool, what everybody's coming up with now. You can build your own climbing gym. There's all these new techniques. And that's when I started figuring out that I could get back into it. Mm. And that's when I started developing this big day. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, I bought a house that I knew I could build a climbing gym in, had a huge attic. And I built a campus board. Um, I built all sorts of, put up all sorts of fingerboards and things like that. And just started getting back into it. And by that time, I had discovered the red. Mm-hmm. And that just fueled my desire to really go full-blown back into it. Yeah, you quickly climbed through all the routes there. You ended up developing Transworld Depravity in Omaha Beach. Yeah. Um, Were those the first, was Transworld the first 14A in the red? Uh, no, I think David Hume had done some things. For First off, it's probably about 92. I had been doing a little bit of climbing in southern Illinois. Okay. There's actually a really cool area down there called Jackson Falls. And the, and the okay. climbs are really good. They're just kind of short. Huh. So I do occasional trips down there. So I think a little bit of climbing. And then um, a good climbing friend of mine, another philosophy professor named Steve Downs, who teaches up at the University of Utah. He had a postdoc at the University of Cincinnati. And he, or I think it was a postdoc, it may have been a position there. But anyhow, he invited me to meet him at the New River Gorge. And that's where I went down in 
probably May of 92 or 91 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's when I met Porter Gerard and Doug Reed. Okay. We were all kind of staying in this big house. And Porter started telling me about this place he was developing in Kentucky. Mm. And I was just kind of skeptical. I'm like, climbing in Kentucky. Right. <laughs> okay, horse racing, yes. Bourbon, yes. No rock, mountains. Rock climbing, what's the deal? <laughs> but I'd, I'd been exposed to that sandstone in uh -huh. southern Illinois. So I thought, that's intriguing. So I was kind of getting back into it. I also realized that I didn't need to spend my summers in South Bend. And so I decided I wanted to start spending my summers in Bend, Oregon, so I'd be closer to my family, closer to friends, and able to climb at and Smith. And where is South Bend, just to make it really South clear. Bend is in northern Indiana. Okay. Yeah, it's about 100 miles out of Chicago. Got it. You know, the summers are really humid there. It's kind of gross, and I couldn't climb. So I was like, oh, I'll just start going to, to Smith's. So I started having the opportunity to go climbing more, and then I took a trip down to the Red, and I was just... Oh my God, these walls are amazing. I was completely yeah. blown away. Yeah. And that then really fueled the passion even more. Hmm. So I really started getting back into training. My original goal was to get to where I could climb a 513 because I'd never really led a 513. Mm -hmm. And there was this new thing called sport climbing that was going on. So yeah, I didn't yeah. have to worry about dying, placing gear, anything like that. You just clip these bolts. It's like a really, man, climbing's changed so much for the better nowadays. So, <laughs> so I was really getting back into it. And uh, yeah, it seemed like it was pretty quick and I kind of worked up through the grades. I think my first 514 I climbed was Badman. Oh, right. I did that in the summer of 1998. Mm -hmm. And uh, so about three, four or five years, I was able to climb a 514. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of had, I really loved the mother load. I love that area at the Red. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a pretty incredible cliff. Just one brief trip. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and at that time, people were working on things in the Madness Cave. And a good friend of mine, showing just tremendous generosity, Chris Martin, had been working a project that went about two-thirds the way up the wall mm -hmm. in the middle, right at the middle of the Madness Cave. It's just a beautiful, beautiful line. And we were playing around one day, and I got on it, and, I, and we kind of figured out that it would actually go to the top. Hmm. So he said, you know what? I'll never do that. I'm going to put in an, another anchor at the top, put in one more bolt between yeah. the old anchor and the top. Okay. And you know what, you guys? You have at it. Uh-huh. And so I started working on that, and I did it, um, and that wound up being Omaha Beach. Cool. And there's a right really on. fascinating history with that route and what Katie Brown did on it and everything we can talk about later. But that was really only 13D at uh, that time. Okay. But I'd done some other things. I think I did Trans World Depravity, I believe, in the spring of 2001. Mm -hmm. But by that time, I think that David Hume had climbed... Maybe a couple, three. I know he'd done Thanatopsis by then. Okay. And the way he so did it too. Yeah, it, I guess. But I mean, if you saw how he did it, it was probably more like 14C. Okay. He did that just before he did Just Do It in four tries. Got you. Yeah. And that one's kind of atypical for the red, right? It's it's a little it's bit- really crimpy. Yeah, really um, crimpy, not quite as steep I think as everything else. since he's done it, people have found a better line, maybe a, a more natural way to climb it. Got it. And it's still really hard. Mm -hmm. And probably things have broken off too, so it probably evens out. But there there had been 514s that had been done there. Okay. But anyway, I did uh, Omaha Beach, Transville Depravity, and then an extension of Bohica, and that was really pretty damn cool to be involved in that yeah, development there that's awesome yeah yeah and then i did some things over at the dark side and the gold coast and some other places as well okay so i feel really really fortunate and really lucky to have at least played a small role in the development of, of yeah. what is now probably one of the most important climbing areas in the world totally and i feel actually kind of lucky that i've had this experience where i've kind of been involved in the primordial stages of two major areas like yeah. smith rock 
in the 70s and then uh, the Red River Gorge in the 90s. So I'd love to jump back to that, actually, because okay. I just did an interview with Alan Watts. Sure, yeah, awesome born, interview. You're born this, thank you, you're born the same day in the same, same, day, same hospital. hospital. He, keeps, he keeps reminding me he's six hours older than me. <laughs> I'm like, whatever. Well, that was cool when you guys were in your 20s. Now it's probably reversed, right? Uh, okay, I'm younger. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm younger than you, buddy. Yeah, exactly. But I find it really interesting. I mean, you were talking about your kind of double climbing career. You were telling me a story. We were just hanging out the other night, and you were telling me a story about you would listen to Alan's interview, and you guys had climbed together. You went to U of O together, and you're mm-hmm. climbing at the columns. And then you go off to do your doctorate at UCSD. Yeah. And Alan said that you were feeling sorry for him. Yeah, I think you I had remember. Different language. <laughs> well, I think. You... Do you remember what you, what you actually told I, him? I, I don't. Probably shouldn't say it on public. But I do remember <laughs> telling him basically. <laughs> You know, and it was really interesting at the time because you got to realize at that time, we're talking the early 80s, it was still the case that crack climbing dominated everything mm-hmm. because California dominated everything. Yeah. And Yosemite was at the center of the world, basically, for climbing, at least in America and certainly on the West. So everything was crack climbing. Mm-hmm. And there's crack climbing at Smith, but it was running out. Yeah. It was just and, getting nasty. And it was getting worse and worse. Yeah. And the stuff that was left was not very good. And so we all kind of moved away. I think that... Uh, Chris Jones and Alan Lester moved to Colorado. I really liked some of the crack climbing on the granite in Southern uh, California. And I knew that UCSD had a program that I was interested in. So I moved there. And I remember kind of talking to him once and I was saying something to the effect of, you know, Alan, it's just so sad that you're just going to kind of waste away here. You're such a talented climber (laughs) and you're just going to be stuck in this backwoods climbing area that's basically sort of run its course. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I often tell people that's the wrongest I've ever been about anything. <laughs> it was complete, I could not have been more wrong. So yeah, uh, he had the vision and the insight. But I think a lot of it, quite frankly, was just motivated by a true, true love for that area. Mm-hmm. Alan was really interesting in that, you know, I think at that time people were pretty competitive and Alan was competitive too, which mm-hmm. is why he got so good. But I kind of think, looking back now, I would say so much of his agenda was less about promoting himself and becoming the top climber and more about making Smith Rock this really special place. Mm. And I just know that like when he bolted to bolt, he was thinking not necessarily that he was going to do it, but he was thinking, man, wouldn't it be awesome if the country's first 514 was here? Mm. Um, Wouldn't it be awesome if all these really hard routes were here? And so I really feel like his main agenda was promoting that area. It was promoting Smith. Yeah. And he succeeded tremendously. Yeah. Beyond his wildest dreams, I'm sure. It sounds like you were kind of the impetus to go to U of O because the climbing was there. Yeah. I mean, I had gone down and visited. My sister was at U of O and I'd kind of already made up my mind I was going to go there. But and I'd heard there was this little climbing area in the center of town and one of my sister's friends took me there, and oh yeah, these were awesome cracks. Yeah, they were just amazing. This is the columns. This is at the columns NUG. there, and you could go there and you could top rope. And uh, so I came back and I told Alan about it. And I, I think Alan was thinking he wanted to go to college, but he wasn't sure where. He wasn't sure if he was going to go to COCC or what he was going to do. And I told him, man, there's this incredible climbing area right in downtown. It's basically you could ride a bike there from school. Uh-huh. And he was really intrigued. And so, of course, the very first day we were there, we went there uh-huh. and he was loving it. And <laughs> at that time, I remember Chris Jones. I had not met Chris Jones, but he had legendary status. Oh, really? Oh, already? Yeah, already. Uh-huh. Um, he had done some things at Smith's and Boulder Problems that were just phenomenally hard. And then we would see this chalk on some of these things at the columns. And we we're like, what's up with this? And like, everybody would be 
oh yeah, that's Jones. Huh. Jones did that. And he was in Yosemite at that time. And so we were kind of like, he was, had this whole mystique about him. Hmm. And plus, he'd survived a 150-foot groundfall in Yosemite. Oh my gosh, yeah, you told me this story. Yeah, he fell off the top of Maple Jam. And it's probably about 150 feet. Uh-huh. And basically came away from it with like a chipped heel and, and a concussion and maybe a compressed vertebrae. And that was it. I mean, it, it's if you went to the top of this cliff, I did this climb a few years ago. Uh-huh. And you get yeah. to the top and you look down and you think about falling, free falling all that way. Yeah. You're like, there's absolutely no way anybody's surviving that. Yeah. And so he was kind of this mythical being. And then when he showed up, and he's, of course, this incredibly sweet person, Chris, is just like the nicest human being you'll ever meet. Really, really interesting. He always wants to debate physics and things like that and okay. philosophy. So he's really, really a good friend. <laughs> We're still good friends. Cool. But he was talking about doing these things on the columns that were had a contrivance rating. I don't know if Alan told you about that. It was C1 to C4. No. About how, what level of contrivance it was. And C1 was like, well, you had to avoid these holds. They're kind of obvious, but it wasn't too bad. Uh-huh. Whereas for a C4 contrivance rating, you were fighting gravity. Like if you're lie backing something and gravity is trying to push you against the wall, you're not allowed to touch the wall. <laughs> so half the effort is trying to fight, you know, t- touching something that's almost impossible not to touch. Uh-huh. That was the most contrivance. But of course we had to do that because in a very short period of time, Alan had climbed everything that was there. And so now we're starting to contrive things. Okay, you got to do it without these holds. Yeah. Or you got to do it one-handed. Was it just him that had... He was mostly him. Okay. Um, I mean, I was doing a little bit of it. I did more after he left. I kind of got more back into climbing at the columns. But I was focusing on my classes, and he was going there basically every day. Yeah. And he... If you saw some of these things that he did there, especially his (laughs) one-handed ascents on the column faces, uh-huh. where he's just using one face and he's standing, then we're using EBs, right? These are like terrible shoes, but he's basically standing on things about the size of, you know, pencil lead. Mm-hmm. And he's moving up this thing with only using one hand. And I'm just like, what on earth? That's by far some of like, the hardest climbing he ever did. Like dead pointing? Yeah, like, like dead pointing. Pin scars and Sometimes dead pointing to pin scars, sometimes pinching things and grabbing things and (laughs) it's amazing it was really amazing and when he talks about getting good there what he got really good at is footwork his footwork was phenomenal Mm -hmm. and so he could just stand on things and put full weight on basically yeah because he developed all that all that skill set doing these one-handed ascents at the columns wow and but yeah it basically was our climbing gym but it was fixed there was no changing things so the only way you could mix it up and do something new was by eliminating holds, eliminating hands, you know, things <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. So it still was really a fun place to hang out and go climbing. Yeah. And uh, there was a guidebook that I think Chris had for a while. And I think, you know, for this little tiny area, there are over 300 routes. Oh, maybe, wow. 400 routes or something, given wow. all the different variations and versions <laughs> and one-handed and... C-grades. C-grades and everything. Yeah. It was insane. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So then you go to UCSD, and it sounds like you did a little bit of climbing there, but you were I more did. focused on I did. I spent a little bit of time. I was going to places like like Mount Woodson, I have a few kind of FAs there okay. at Mount Woodson. Were you ever looking back at what Alan ended up doing at Smith and feeling like you missed out? I was. I mean, yeah. by, by the mid-80s, by say 85, 86, I would come back and I would go out there and I'd just like, oh my God, this is amazing what's happening. Yeah. Once he started wrapping down those faces and seeing what was possible, that's when the sport changed, basically. Mm-hmm. And seeing that, whoa, there's all this new kind of climbing going on and we're placing bolts now with power drills. And um, I was really blown away. But at the same time, I was also very much locked into a pretty hardcore PhD program. Mm -hmm. And I was really completely focused on academics at that point. Mm -hmm. I would go out climbing occasionally, 
but I was really working to get my PhD done. And I had a good career. I had a couple good publications as a graduate student. Okay. Um, one, one which wound up being a noteworthy paper. I think it's been reprinted seven or eight times. Mm-hmm. And so that really was where my focus was at that time. And then when I went to Notre Dame, I kind of, especially thinking, wow, man, I'm moving to the Midwest. It's freaking cornfields everywhere. Yeah. There's really no climbing anywhere around here. So again, I was largely focused on my career, focused on philosophy, focused on getting tenure and all that sort of stuff. Had you resolved to let climbing go? It it was hard. It was really hard. I was missing it a lot. Okay. And mostly what I had to say I was missing was both the athleticism and pushing myself, but I also was really missing the sort of being part of a climbing community. Yeah. Um, I think climbers are really interesting individuals. They're interesting characters. They often have interesting insights on things. And I just miss being a part of that mm-hmm. um, and sort of, you know, going into a pub and hearing about somebody's day, some climbing story where they got scared. Yeah. I just missed all of that. Mm. And so I was kind of looking to get back into it. And then once I got tenure, I felt like I could relax a little bit on the academic stuff. And at about that time is when I found out about the red. Mm. And that really changed everything for me. Okay. So what drew you to philosophy? Uh, that's a really good question. Had you told me when I started at U of O that I was going to wind up being a philosophy professor, I would have just laughed. I just thought that's the most ridiculous thing. What did you start out in? Well, I didn't really start out of anything. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I okay. just kind of just assumed I was going to wind up with a business major because that's what everybody did. Huh. But I, I was curious and I started taking philosophy classes and all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, these questions I've had in my life, you know, <laughs> these things I've pondered and thought about since I was a little kid and I thought I was a freak thinking about these things. Um, Do you have an out, example? Uh, you know, whether or not it's rational to believe in God. Huh. Um, questions about where does the rightness or wrongness of an act come from. Okay. Those sort of questions, I'd always kind of had them in the back of my mind. And then learning that there's this whole discipline that's devoted to addressing these questions was really eye-opening for me. Hmm. And so I started, I take this philosophy class and I thought, well, that was really good. I did pretty well in it. And I took another philosophy class. Like, well, that was really interesting. I did pretty well in that. And so by the time I was a senior, I was starting to realize that uh, I was going to major in philosophy. That's where all my credits were. And I was also starting to realize I was pretty good at it. Hmm. Like I actually seemed to have a knack for it. Um, the graduate students there would often come and sort of ask me questions and things. Okay. So I kind of thought, mm, I wonder if I could maybe consider a career here or go to grad school. And mostly what I was thinking is, well... I don't know what I want to do um, for sure, but uh, if I go to grad school, I can kind of continue climbing, and that sounds like a pretty good existence, and maybe if I just wind up getting my master's degree, that'll still be an accomplishment. Hmm. And then when I left school, I really missed being in school. So I, left, I moved to San Diego, and I just worked odd jobs for about a year. Okay. Um, I worked as a bagel baker. And as a runner at a DARPA research facility where we built this gigantic laser, it was part oh. of Reagan's Star Wars program. Oh, no kidding. So I, did, I, I was a bus boy. I did, did all these odd jobs and I saved up a, mon- a bunch of money. Is this before UCSD? Yeah it, was, yeah, it was while I was waiting. I was getting my residency in California. I knew I wanted Got to take it. a little bit of break between undergraduate and grad school. Uh-huh. Uh, I was applying to grad schools, taking the GREs and things like that, but just working these jobs and really hating not being in school. But I did at least save up enough money where I could take a trip to Arapiles. Mm. So I wound up taking a trip to Arapiles, I believe, in 1983. Okay. 83 or 84. For listeners, that's in Australia. Yeah, that's in Australia. And at the time, that was kind of considered one of the major international climbing areas. Mm. People knew who Kim Kerrigan was. He'd traveled around. And that was actually a really, really great trip. I met a lot of really interesting characters over there. 
And a bunch of Australians had been visiting me the, the spring before. Huh. So I just had a good time. And then I came back, and that's then that following fall, I started graduate school. Okay. Yeah. Got yeah. you. But at the time I started graduate school, I thought, well, I can, I can do graduate school and, and still climb. And then the more I got into graduate school, the more I was, mm, this, is, this is hard work. This is going to take some effort, and I can't be out climbing all the time. Mm. So that's when I probably started backing away from climbing. Okay. But I, I was missing it immediately. And then when I moved to Notre Dame, I really missed it. Mm. And I thought, man, if there's some way I can get back into it, I really want to. And like I said, that's about the time I found out about the red, was completely blown away by what was down there, was completely blown away by what an interesting community of characters there are at the red. <laughs> really, really good people, really fun people to hang out with. Uh-huh. And I thought, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Huh. And in many ways, that then became my social life. Yeah, uh, I was driving 400 miles each way pretty much every weekend, both to climb and then here's where all my friends were. I mean, I have academic friends at Notre Dame, but I didn't know anybody else really in South Bend. Mm-hmm. And I had had an apartment in Chicago. I dated a woman in Chicago for a while. But generally, I didn't like that commute either, and I wasn't a huge fan of the big city. Mm-hmm. So finding this community of individuals in Kentucky where I could stay at their place and hang out with them and we go climbing and they're really good folks... I just really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. So, How long have you been in Vegas now? I moved here in 2007. And how did that get on your radar? Good question. On 2005, I was on sabbatical, and I often try to use sabbaticals as little ways to go sample different climbing areas. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like I'm pretty lucky. I've kind of been a local at maybe six or five or six different climbing areas, yeah. just given where I spend my summers and things like that. But I'd never really spent any time in Vegas. And so I thought, you know, I should go out there and check out some of the climbing out there. And so I had a friend here, Stephanie Forte, and she needed a house guest, a housemate. So I moved in with her. And, uh, and my main goal was like, yeah, that's kind of one major climbing area I don't really know much about. I, don't really, I haven't really done anything at the Charleston or okay. in that area. So I, climbed, already... I climbed at the VRG, and I'd fly into Vegas from South Bend to go to Bishop, mm-hmm. to go to some of the areas around here. But in terms of focusing on Vegas as kind of the destination where I'm going to live, I thought, I'm going to go check that out. So I lived here for about eight months. Okay. And that was a year I did stuff like Root of All Evil and a few of the 514s up at, uh, up at Charleston, a couple of them, I guess. And man, I thought, this place is awesome. This yeah. is really a good place. This yeah. is great. And I gave a talk at the philosophy department here. And the chair of the department at the time is a friend of mine. And he said, I told him, I'm like, hey, you know, I really like it out here. If you guys ever have any kind of an appointment or anything, just keep me up on that. Mm-hmm. And I'd been wanting to move west for some time. I really was very happy with the university at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have a problem with the school. I liked the people there. I liked the students a lot. But I really didn't like the Midwest. And I was mm-hmm. really starting to grind on me to do this drive to Kentucky every mm-hmm. single weekend to climb. That's a lot. And I, you know, I, I was spending time in Chicago. I was spending time in, in Kentucky, spending time in South Bend. And I just felt like my life was scattered. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to live someplace where everything was consolidated. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, I could do that in Las Vegas. So I... I said this to the department chair, and he's like, oh, really? Well, let me look into it. And they then pretty much created a position for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, I came out the following year and interviewed, and they hired me. Huh. So uh, that was actually really cool. So I moved here in 2007. It was also good because I could be closer to my family up in Oregon. It's just easy to zip up there. And uh, right away, I was just like a kid in a candy shop. There's all this great, all these great cliffs around here. Mm-hmm. There's all this great climbing. I don't think there's any place in the country where you have a major metropolitan area that's surrounded by so much climbing of such variety. Yeah. You have world-class bouldering, 
world-class sport climbing and world-class multi-pitch track climbing. And it's good year-round. It's, it's just year-round, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's pretty unbelievable. It's interesting because even if you talk about Vegas to most people now, they think of Red Rocks. Yeah. But so the limestone is really what makes it amazing. And, and yeah. there's so many different limestone cliffs. So that was on your radar right from the beginning. Right from the beginning because okay. I knew there'd been this history here when Joe Brooks and Jason Campbell and various other people were here. Vegas was kind of one of the top destination places. Mm. When the French would come over to sample the hard climbs, they would often fly straight to Vegas and spend their time here. Mm -hmm. And so there was often a little bit of a rivalry between, I think, Vegas and some of the other areas. Uh -huh. um, I think if you ask some of the people living out there at the time who were working for one of the climbing magazines, <laughs> they would agree that perhaps the characterization of Vegas was deliberately <laughs> negative at times, perhaps. But in any event, um, so yeah, it had this history that I knew was really good limestone climbing. And then it sort of fell out of favor, became kind of persona non grata of the climbing areas. But I just knew these routes were really good. And I started climbing them and I'm just like, wow, this stuff is amazing. Hmm. And now, of course, it's enjoying kind of resurgence. Mm -hmm. Now that Seagrist and Honold are climbing up at Potosi. Yeah, and Potosi. Potosi is now lot. kind of a cool cliff again. <laughs> yeah, it's not an evil place after all. Uh, but yeah, all these cliffs around here are great. And there's so much availability you know, within a couple hours of different stuff. All the stuff around southern Utah is easy to get to. Mm -hmm. And you're only a few hours from Bishop, um, a few hours from Flagstaff. So yeah, I have no regrets whatsoever. I mm -hmm. really, really like it here. I like the fact that where we are right now in my place, 20 minutes in one direction, you're in this beautiful, pristine desert with tons of climbing possibility, 20 minutes the other direction. It's just crazy urban Disneyland. Yeah. And you can see whatever shows or get whatever meals you want. And it's yeah. really cool that way. Yeah, it is a pretty The contrast pretty is, makes it kind of neat. Combination. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that's uniquely inspiring about you, in, in my mind, is you've, at this point, you've uh, you've done 26 or 27 514s. Yeah, something like that. Thanks, yeah. Um, All but one of them after age 40. Yeah. Omaha Beach at that time when I did it was 13D. So Badman was the only one I did before 40. Uh-huh. And then uh, I think 42, I did Super Tweak, okay. which is 14B. At um, American Fork? It's actually up in Logan. Oh, okay. It's at the China Wall in Logan. Oh, right. Okay. And it's kind of comically, I said to myself, man, I'll never climb 14B again. This is too hard. Uh-huh. I've done a few since then, but yeah. I think I've, you've said that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> but in any event, I feel like I've, I've been really fortunate and really lucky to be able to have a second career that's been as successful as it has been yeah. being older like that. Was there a, a shift in your approach, you think, that led to that, this really successful past decade? Or was it just that you'd been climbing long enough that you finally kind of crossed some threshold? How do you think about that? Probably a lot of different factors. Uh -huh. Part of it, probably, I was able to have a successful second career, probably because I did take that time off. I was going to ask that. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. The fact that I wasn't, you know, dinoing through my 20s, basically, and hmm. grabbing small crimps and uh, tearing my shoulder up or whatever, is probably what allowed me to climb pretty well in my 40s, hmm. to have that time off. I probably had fewer injuries than I would have had had I been climbing that whole time. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, I've got pretty good genes, and I think that helps. And I feel like as you get older, you learn how to listen to your body, and you learn how to let go when you need to. Hmm. I feel like sometimes people train and they're like, I'm gonna latch that hole no matter what, you know, and they do this big dyno, mm -hmm. and they hang on even though things don't quite feel right, and then something tears. Hmm. And I think one thing you get good at as you get older is you, you pick up on that right away and you let go. 
Okay. If something doesn't feel quite right, I let go. So I think being a lot more intelligent about training, doing things like warming up. So I've never had an injury that was due to having too big of a day, like at the end of the day. People always talk about people getting injured because they're tired. I've never had anything like that ever happen. I'm always, any injury I've had was due to not warming up enough. Huh. And so I'm pretty religious about warming up. Like it takes me now about an hour to warm up. What is your, what is your warm up? Jeez, like? I mean, just, well, first there's those cup of coffees. That's the first <laughs> step. And then getting out of bed's the next step. <clears throat> but then uh, I'll hang off a fingerboard for maybe 10 seconds and then, you know, come do something, go drink some more coffee, come hang for 20 seconds, hmm. 30 seconds, <clears throat> do one pull up, then do five pull ups, then do 20 pull ups. If I'm going to do weighted dead hangs, I'll start with lightweight and then just kind of work my way up. Mm -hmm. Try to do, I used to do quite a lot of stretching because I felt like that was a kind of a secret weapon I had where I, my turnout was really good hmm. and I could get in really tight to the wall. So I'd really work on stretching. Okay. That'd kind of be all part of my warm-up routine. Would you do static stretching before? Yeah, I would. I would try to maybe get on the exercise bike. But okay. I, I think one of the goofier training memes out there right now is no one should ever do static stretching. I think that's wrong. Yeah. You know, if you look at a gymnast or a ballerina. Totally. They're flexible for a reason. And, yeah. Uh, and it's not from doing high kicks. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if you're warming up to do something, you want to be dynamically stretching. But at the end of the day or after a certain sort of process, I think you want to have a routine of static stretching as well. Okay. Just to, just to open up that range of motion. Are there specific go-tos that you have worked yeah, on? Yeah, like, you know, like the kind of frog where you basically are just kind of frogging, laying down on the ground and trying to get your knees to go straight out mm -hmm. and you get your crotch right onto the ground as much as possible that's mm -hmm. replicating getting in really close at a rest where you're taking weight off your hands the tighter you get mm -hmm. just you know a lot of the standard stretches hurdler stretches just basic things that i think most climbing books would recommend you do yeah. upper body stretches shoulder stretches things like that trying to open up the shoulders a little bit more i feel like all those things are good what would be like a protocol that you would do uh, How long would you hold them? How many sets? I think like I that. think it count to about twenty-five or thirty. Okay. For a particular stretch, I think that is a good friend of ours who climbs here, a good climbing person in the climbing community, Craig Berman, has actually written a book on how to stretch. Hmm. Um, it's a really good book. Okay. And uh, I'll link to that. Yeah. I'll ask you yeah. That later. Um, probably about a half hour routine. Hmm. So maybe holding things for 30 seconds and going through different positions. I just think it kind of helps me feel limbered up. A lot of times I'll go for a run beforehand. Okay. So like when I was climbing on Golden and when I was climbing, when I climb in Rifle, I get up, first thing I do kind of is do a little bit of stretching and then go for a, make a 15 minute run. Mm -hmm. Just so that when I'm stretching then to get the day going, I'm a little limbered up. I got some blood in the muscles and I think that helps with the stretching too. Okay. So it sounds like you do a little bit more of the dynamic sort of stretching as part of the warm up. And yeah. And this 30 minute routine is a separate thing. Yeah. Like at the end of the day. Like every kinda, day or just on no, training No. Well, or? yeah. On every day when I'm really in the thick of things. Okay. I'm getting close on a project or something gotcha. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Does your warm up change at all for your big indoor training days versus like a red pointing day? Yeah. The warm up's not so different. But then what I do for a red pointing day when I was working like Jumbo and Golden, I recognized that when you're in the early phases of a project and you're really not going to send it, you don't want to start atrophying right away. And that's what happens when you're project. You get weaker overall. Mm -hmm. So what occurred to me is that you can still maintain training if your project's somewhere near where you live. You can keep up the training while you're projecting. Mm -hmm. And so I would train a little bit in the morning before okay. getting on these projects maybe an hour or so fingerboarding or something like that. Got you. And uh, I would probably be a little bit diminished, but not a lot. 
and I'd still be making progress on the project. Mm -hmm. So then when you get really close, you're really getting close to redpointing, then I would cut some of that out. Okay. And then I would get to the cliff feeling a little bit stronger, a little bit more fresh. And I would also have the strength now, I'd be kind of peaking in strength mm -hmm. to take it over the top and to do the project. So either a little bit of training beforehand or maybe a little bit of training afterwards. I just believe in continuing the training when you're in project mode, if yeah, it's possible. Totally. Okay. I think that's really helpful. When I was at Rifle, I had one of those uh, tripods for the fingerboards. Yeah. And I was climbing on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I would always make a point then of training Friday night, training okay. pretty hard Friday night, and then take Saturday and Sunday off. Got you. Okay. Yeah. That worked pretty well. So let's say you're trying jumbo pumping hate and maybe you're still like in the process where you're not really close to red pointing. Right. So you'd wake up, do a very similar warm up to what you described. Yep. Do a few max hangs. Do a few max hangs. Yep. Maybe okay. I've got a little homemade fingerboard I use that uh, has about a 13 millimeter edge on it. That's okay. really friendly, really comfortable. So I would hang off of that for about seven seconds with maybe 80, 90 pounds added. Oh, wow. Okay. Something like that. Uh, maybe Different do five positions or it's not just open hand, completely okay. open hand and do maybe like five or six reps of that. If I'm in really training mode, it'd be maybe seven or eight reps and be two, two sets. Whereas I maybe just like, if I'm getting up to climb on jumbo, I'd maybe just do one set I and mean, maybe do one other set with two finger pockets or something like that. Because so this that is like repeaters? Like no, this would be more maxing. It'd be more like seven seconds on and 70 second rest. Got it. Something like that. Okay. Or even two minute rest. Okay. Um, so more weight. I, there's no way I could do repeaters with 90 pounds on. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah I got thrown off. You said six or seven reps, but then you also thought Yeah, so, I, so I'd, I, would, I would do seven seconds on, rest 70 seconds, do another one. Do that seven, seven times. times. Yeah. And then how did, the, how did the sets fit into that? I would do maybe two sets or three sets when I'm in training mode. Okay. And when I'm in semi-training mode, because I'm on a project, maybe only one set. And just, you mean longer rest between? No, I mean, or... I mean, I would, I would do the same amount of resting, but instead of doing that seven times and then waiting and then doing it again, mm -hmm. which would be another set, I would just do that once. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, and you know, if I feel like a climb, one thing that I like to do is also replicate the hard moves as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So for jumbo pumping hate, for example, there's this gigantic dyno on it that was just shutting me down. And I actually replicated it pretty well in my garage. Okay. So I would put on a weight belt and do that a few times, just so I'm already kind of got the feel of it by the time I get up to the cliff. And I felt like that helped quite a lot. On a, on a climbing, like on a board? <clears throat> yeah, I've got uh, little climbing walls in my garage. Okay. It's tough because they're not very big. Did you use the weight belt to try to replicate the rope, rope drag? drag? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I use the weight belt to try to replicate rope drag. So I'm like only five pounds or two and a half pounds. Okay. <clears throat> but it would make it a little bit harder. And I would try to get the feet as accurately modeling what's on the route as possible. And just kind of doing it a few times. Because a lot of times I feel like your first burn, you're just kind of relearning things and you're getting the feel for it again. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a waste. But if you can already have kind of done the move a couple times. I mean, also, like when I was working Golden, I would go up to the crux and do the crux three or four times as part of my warm up. Hmm. That'd be the first thing I would do of the day. I would climb this 12 and then cross over onto the head wall, pull my way up to the crux and do the crux. Hmm. As that's my first warm up, and then I would go do a, like a 13A or something like that. Okay. <clears throat> because I really feel like, you know, it's like if you think about it in gymnastics, 
a gymnast, if they're going to warm up for their floor routine or their high bar routine, or mm-hmm. they're going to do moves in that routine. Right. They're going to go up and do the individual moves. Mm-hmm. They're not going to just walk in and stretch and then do, try to do their performance cold like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to do something like that for the route. But of course, if the moves are 100 feet off the ground, <clears throat> it's hard to get up there and do it. Mm-hmm. So I try to replicate those moves in the garage. So I'm mm. kind of doing it before I even get to the cliff. I've kind of already done the crux a couple of times. Hmm. And I think that does two things. It warms you up for it for that day. But also doing that move over and over again, it makes you stronger Mm -hmm. on those holds. So I think it's it's really quite beneficial Hmm. to have that kind of program. If you can if you can do that, if you can replicate individual cruxes on a project that you're working on in your garage or wherever at your at your favorite climbing gym, I think it's dumb not to. Yeah. I think it really helps. I've heard you talk about setting up replicas not to be exact, but to do a, a bunch of different similar replicas to a boulder problem or a crux well, on your project. Ideally, the replica you set up is a little bit harder. Okay. The holds are a little bit smaller. Um, do you maybe try it's to a mimic bit it as perfectly as I possible? I do. I, I mean, I'm up there with a tape measure. Are you? Yeah. I'm right. up there with yeah. a freaking tape measure and taking pictures. It's like I'm a detective. And uh, <laughs> a forensic you, team, basically. How do you deal with the angle? Because I'm sure it's your garage hard, wall... You know, so it's not perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, your phone has on a, a tilt meter. Uh-huh. So you can just hold your phone up to the wall and kind of get a sense of what the angle is. Yeah. So, you know, it's not going to be perfect. That's awesome. But you got to work really hard to make it as perfect as possible. And um, How do you find the right holds? Oh, you go online and you look at holds and you study holds that are available and you, and you order them. That's exactly what I did. I, there were awesome. particular holds I wanted and I went online with all the different hold companies and then huh. like, okay, this is the one that's really going to me- replicate. Or I just make them out of wood. Okay. I've done that quite a bit. In fact, I think they, the hold that I was using to replicate the hold you go off of when you do the dyno, I just made with wood. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty easy to construct wooden holds that are replicating what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you went out there right now, you'd see there are these, there's all these weird holds that have paper towels stuffed in behind them where the, some of the holds been taken away uh-huh. or they've been sanded down in certain ways. And that's just all me trying to perfectly replicate the hold on a given I have to someplace. go look at this. I'm going to take a photo <laughs> yeah, of it and link, link to it in the show notes for um, but, people to look at. Uh, but yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, because I think that, you know, you're trying to model this thing and it's really challenging you. And you want to feel comfortable on it, and practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. So there you go. How much harder will you shoot for? Not a lot harder, because if you make it too hard, you're not going to be able to do it at all, and you get yeah. frustrated. Like a V-grade or two, something maybe like that? Maybe half a V-grade or a V-grade, maybe, okay. something like that. But, you know, you do want it to be something that when you're on the cr- route, it, oh, this feels a little easier. Yeah. This doesn't feel so bad. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of lot to be said for that. I mean, that's one reason why I like using the tread wall, because... The fundamental principle of training is incremental increasing of difficulty. Uh-huh. And when you, you just go to the climbing gym and you just get on these boulder problems and they're only there for a week and a half because they're going to take them down, <clears throat> you don't really get to factor that in. But if you're on something like a tread wall or something where you can adjust the angle, I guess the kilter board's kind of like this now, mm-hmm. you can get a problem dialed and then making it, make it progressively harder. Mm-hmm. You can also do this by adding weight belts and stuff like that. I've heard of people doing it where they actually start sanding off the holds, making the holds a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. So all that, I think, makes, makes good sense. Hmm. And, of course, if you can do a crux sequence on a version of it that's harder than what you're going to encounter on the route, that's going to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that. That's a great segue because I wanted to come back to some more of your training stuff. Okay. We were at the climbing gym here the other day. I got here right when it rained. So <laughs> right. Nice, nice timing. Um, the one day out of the year. But you, you showed up. You're on the tread wall. And you said, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said, 
the tread wall was the most important and critical training tool in rock climbing. I think for me, that's right. Yeah. And I think, look, maybe I should qualify that a little bit. I would say for a route climber. Uh Uh-huh. I think you did say that. For a route climber who's trying to develop the endurance or the power endurance, I definitely feel comfortable saying it is the most underutilized mm-hmm. device mm-hmm. that exists. I'm blown away by the number of coaches and trainers who don't do anything with it. They don't incorporate it at all mm-hmm. in any way. And maybe it's because they're kind of rare. They're kind of hard to find. They are, yeah. But that's just because no one's using them, right? Uh-huh. I mean, if there's a market for them, there'll be a company that starts building them. Look, here's an analogy that I sometimes use. Suppose that you're trapped in a 10 by 10 cell and you're training for a 12K, okay? And there's two options in terms of how you can do this. We can bring in a treadmill and you can train on that, or you can do wind sprints in your cell. Go back and forth in your cell. Uh If they were climbers, they'd be like, okay, I'm gonna do the wind sprints. (laughs) It's it's like, so it's kind of like, oh no. I mean, in terms of doing continually 40, 50 moves, where you're going up the whole time, you can't beat it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that 4x4s aren't helpful, you know, and that doesn't mean that you can't do routes in the gym because now we have 80-foot routes in gyms. But just in terms of having like five or six or seven routes you've dialed in and being able to then link them together to come up with all different kinds of combinations to link them up. So now you're doing a 70, 80-foot route on the tread wall. Mm-hmm. I just don't see anything that beats it. Mm-hmm. And I don't see anything that's going to prepare you for hard climbing on routes any better than that. Now, I know it takes some getting used to. You have to wire those climbs. That's part of it. Especially on the one at the gym here. Yeah. It's short enough. I, I was watching yeah, you climb it's on short. it. And yeah. you're, you're reaching up around yeah. The, yeah. the angle change. Ideally, they're a little bigger. There's actually a version of that machine that's larger. It seems like everybody in band has one these days. <laughs> but yeah, you want to put on four or five or six or seven routes and then do these interesting link-ups. It is drudgery. It's work. It's mm-hmm. training, right? It's not like going into the bouldering gym and like, oh, here's this cool problem. That's fun. It's like, oh, I'm going to try to do this cool problem or this mm-hmm. new thing on the moon board. I'm going to try to do this. That's challenging and interesting. It's a lot like climbing, and so it's fun. Using the tread wall is a lot more like doing laps in the pool mm-hmm. or it's a lot more like going for a long run. Um, it's more work. But I definitely feel like if I hadn't been doing that sort of training, I wouldn't have climbed all those 514s. Mm. It gets you fit. It gives you that kind of endurance. And of course, you can do things like have rests on the machine where you stop the machine and shake out just like you're going to do on your climb. Mm-hmm. Um, you can train resting and recovery that way. So I actually do think it's an underutilized device. It may not be the most important device, but it certainly is is the one that I would say it's kind of amazing when you think about how much route climbing involves endurance. It's kind of amazing that more people don't use it. Mm-hmm. You know, those wide guys, those guys who came over and did all those offwits, what did they the do? Wide they, boys. The wide boys, yeah, yeah. They built this gigantic offwit to train on. Yeah. And it was hard work, I'm sure. But they basically built a kind of crack machine, which is what we used to call them, yeah. to develop those skills. And, and the thing about a treadwall is you can do that for face climbing. Hmm. Actually, I know a guy who actually has cracks on the on it. Oh, really? Wall. Yeah, he's built blocks of wood that you can jam. Oh, wow. So you can even train jamming on these things. That's cool. But I mean, you know, this idea, okay, I got this thing down. Now I just barely got through these the, the green route into the red route into the purple route. And I did that at a 10 degree overhang. So now next week I'm going to try to do it at a 13 degree overhang or something mm. like that. Then next week it's going to be a 70 degree overhang. Mm-hmm. And you just keep getting stronger and stronger. I mean, I think he'd tell you, uh, if you talk to Jonathan, 
that first trip he took to the red, I bet his main, one of his main training programs was just climbing on campus rungs on a tread wall. Yeah. And he just got ridiculously good endurance that way. I'll have to ask him about that. I kind of recall reading on his blog years ago that he was doing that with socks. That like was entirely just, possible. I think he was just well, wearing socks. Fortunately, you can actually climb in socks at the red because all the footholds are gigantic, so it didn't really make any difference. But, uh, but yeah, he, no, I think that I think he understood. too easy, and so he just started doing it with socks. Yeah, and he just acquired this insane capacity for power endurance and endurance where he could just hang on forever. Yeah. So what is your approach then? You'd mentioned like 40 moves. Are mm-hmm. you thinking about kind of climbing root length things on there? Yeah. Are you arcing on there at all? A little bit. I've done that too, where it's much less steep and I try to stay on for 10, 15 minutes. Okay. It's actually hard. I mean, it's actually pretty tough because yeah. you're climbing for quite a ways. Yeah. But yeah, I'm doing, I'm using it for arcing. I think that's really smart. Um, but more of it's targeted towards a, the length of a... The length of time. Uh, but most of the time I'm looking for the length of route. And it depends on the kind of route I'm trying to do. Uh-huh. If the route's much, it's pretty steep and it's got pretty good holds, then I'll probably try to do, be doing large moves between pretty good holds at a pretty steep angle. Mm-hmm. If the route's a little longer, maybe a little less steep, then I'll be focused more on that. Mm-hmm. So it's pro- a lot of times you can shift it around and gear it towards the particular climb that you're actually working on. And so, again, that's what makes it sort of makes its variability such a good thing to work out on. Mm-hmm. But it is work. There's no question. It's not necessarily fun. I mean, you can put on your headphones and listen to music and yeah. have a fan blowing on you the whole time. But you're getting pumped and the sensation of lactic acid is not enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, fighting through that sensation of lactic acid in your forearms, that's, that's kind of painful. Uh-huh. Do you play with the, the speed or the pace? Yep. I've tried to use it to make myself climb faster. I remember when Jonathan and I were training on it one time, and he would just, he was just couldn't believe how slow I was going. He, <laughs> it seemed like, I, and I'd watch him like, God, I can't believe how fast you're going. How do you do that? That's interesting because he he seems to climb pretty slow. Yeah, I know, but outdoors. not like me. <laughs> so, so I mean, I'm basically going backwards compared to him. But uh, but I recognized that, and then I watched a video of myself climbing on this thing up at Clark, and I'm like, oh my God, I really am moving slow. Interesting. So I used it then to try to accelerate my climbing, to make me climb faster. Hmm. And I think it's been helpful in that way. Okay. So I'm going quite a bit faster now than I used to. Okay. I'm sure yesterday you're watching, like, God, Bill just seems to hardly be moving on that. I thing. didn't notice that, no. <laughs> I did glance over, though, and you had your earphones in, like you were saying, and you did a set, and then you sat down, and you were writing something in a notebook. Yeah, I think it's really important to keep track of what you're doing and where you are in your training. And so I was writing red into green into purple or rainbow into <laughs> zebra at such and such 65 degrees or whatever. Okay. You know, and counting and, and, and whether or not I succeeded or not mm. at that particular route or where I fell off. Mm-hmm. I just want to kind of keep track of that so that the next time around I can go back and look at where I was and say, oh, well, I feel a little stronger today. I'm going to try to improve on that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really am a firm believer in keeping, that's what all those things are over there, keeping journals. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got, I've been keeping a journal for several years now. Got you. Yeah. So with your massive training days, are you having a lot of the same ingredients in each session every time? Yeah, quite often I am. Okay. I'm kind of a creature of habit, so I like kind of doing things the same way. But I'm generally, this is less so now that I'm getting older, but generally I'm always trying to improve. I'm just trying to add a couple more pounds maybe to the dead hangs, maybe add one more kind of hold that I'm going to dead hang off of a different kind of grip or something like that. I'm going to try to do better on the tread wall. I'm going to maybe try to get more points on the moon board. If I'm going to go to the moon board, I keep track of how many points I'm getting. So maybe I'll try for a 50-point hour session or something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, generally, I keep track of things, and I do pretty much the same stuff. 
but I am trying to see improvement. How do you think about progressing different facets? Are you working on progressing all of those things at the same time, or are you focus more on? It's kind of crazy. Okay. Yeah. Does it work? I think it does. Okay. I, I would argue that more and more people are getting away from the traditional periodization. Uh huh. I would say that if you do it all at once, you're going to improve each facet, but less. You'll, there'll be less improvement in any given facet than you would see if you just focused on that facet. Sure. So one of the reasons why I didn't like the periodization, I'm climbing at the red. I'm like, well, I don't want this to be a power phase where I can't climb routes. Or mm-hmm. I don't want this to where I only have endurance now and I can't do a hard move. Mm-hmm. I want everything to be clicking pretty well. So I would just combine everything in a couple of days. And I would still see some level of progress in my power, in my strength, and in my endurance. But it would not be... Like sometimes I would just, oh, I'm just going to focus on power now and just because I'm going to have a big bouldering trip coming up to Bishop. Mm. I'm just, and then I would really get stronger fingers in. I would really see a power boost. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I would be climbing and I would want everything to be firing. And so I would see incremental progress, not as much progress, but a little bit of progress in every facet every week. So you think it kind of comes out in the wash? I think, it, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Yeah. I think more and more people now are like having maybe a week devoted to power and then maybe a week devoted to endurance or even more i think i think i just listened to leif gash talk to neely and he was saying that he did his first hard the hard route he wanted to do by kind of having individual days be focused so like Mm. one day of the week is really max hang power type stuff bouldering another day of the week was power endurance and another day of the week was more arcing and endurance training Mm -hmm. and i think he found that so it's just kind of Everybody's kind of understands there are these different energy systems, mm-hmm. and you want to focus on those energy systems and with regard to a particular exercise, but how much you spread out the overall workout between that focus on different energy systems varies among different people. Mm-hmm. It seems like the jury's out as to... I how, think that's right. Yeah. I think that's true. It does sound, though, like you typically stick to the conventional wisdom of strength first, yep. then more power endurance or strength endurance, and then more endurance. Yep. I think oh. that's exactly right. Okay. Take care of the power early when you're the most fresh and then leave the endurance stuff for later when you're a little more tired. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that with skills work or learning new movement or things like that? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I've been climbing for 45 years. Yeah, okay. I don't think anything about skill work. I don't do any of that at all. <laughs> okay. And that doesn't mean I, I probably wouldn't help with it, but you know, I'm an old dog. I'm not going to be learning any new tricks. Um, so yeah, that's just not, not on the agenda. So you talk briefly about uh, training resting positions. You mentioned that on the tread wall, but I've also heard you talk about like mimicking or setting a replica of a rest position. Sure. sure. Um, yeah, like on Golden, that? there's a really strenuous rest before you do the crux where you got to do this really kind of strenuous undercling. Uh huh. So I would build that in the garage and I would put on a weight vest and kind of try to hang out in that position, watch TV or something like that, you know, <laughs> read a book and just kind of like until I just couldn't hang on anymore. Uh-huh. And I felt like it was really good for the particular hand or arm strength. But also, it worked out pretty well for the core strength that you need for that rest, too. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of times you hear people get to a rest and they're like, I'm not getting anything back. And I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. You should be getting something back. You watch a really good climber like Mike, and he gets to a rest, and it's almost like he's hanging on the rope. He's getting everything back. <laughs> Mike Doyle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He just has such good endurance and totally. such good resting technique. Huh. Yeah, I think you can train that. Mm-hmm. And um, anything you can do to replicate what's making you suffer on the route so Mm -hmm. that you suffer less on the route Mm -hmm. and it makes you feel a little more comfortable when you're there is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I think, a general principle for training. I think it's a general principle across 
basically all sports. It's like, you know, people have state, when they have a big game coming up, they'll pipe in the, the crowd noise if they have a big away game yeah. to try to make it as just like it's going to be on the real thing. You're trying mm. to simulate it as much as possible. And it's even a little bit better if you can make it a little bit worse. Because mm. then when you're there, you're saying to yourself, ah, it doesn't feel so bad. This mm-hmm. isn't quite so bad. What about opposition work? Do you do any training for that sort of stuff? Not really. No. Really? Um, okay. I mean, like pinch training? No, sorry. I mean, I mean, like... You mean opposing muscle groups? Opposing muscle groups and, and stuff for maybe injury prevention, that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't do as much as I should. Interesting. I don't. I, I mean, I'll do push-ups and things like that, and I'll try to do some core training. <clears throat> but generally, I kind of suspect a little bit's overblown. Yeah. I think that that's maybe hyped a little bit too much. I'm sure I, there's imbalances that yeah. I have, but I don't think it's that big a deal necessarily. That's really interesting. I'm, that's really resonating with me just specifically right now because I'm the person that gets sucked into, I'll hear a compelling argument mm-hmm. for something like that. And I'm all of a sudden I'm like doing mostly stuff that's not really that directly relevant. Yeah, <laughs> I, I see that happen all the time. And yeah. I think part of the reason is because so many trainers and coaches have come out of these programs where they've learned all this cool CrossFit stuff and weightlifting and they have all this knowledge about core. And increasingly, it seems like at least some people... They're spending 60, 70% of their time doing exercises that have nothing to do with climbing. Hmm. I mean, look, people were climbing pretty damn hard in the 90s. I, I Nobody was doing any of that I stuff. Know, no I one re- was doing kettlebell workouts. Go read Jerry Moffat's book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they were getting by okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I think some of that stuff is great and it makes sense and it's probably a really, really good idea. Uh-huh. But my feeling is you, about 80, 85% of what you're doing should be climbing specific. Hmm. I mean, I'm just throwing that number out. I don't know where it got. But I think a good chunk of what you're doing should be kind of really, really intensely focused on what happens when you climb. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you including in that the fingerboarding? Yeah, I'm including fingerboarding in that. I'm including campusing. I'm including tread wall, bouldering, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. But, you know, squat thrusts, (laughs) not so much. Gotcha. Um, Or, you know, kettlebell workouts. Yeah, okay, do that occasionally. But let's not get overboard on that. Yeah. I want to get fit for climbing. Cool. Last thing on training. In your conversation with Neely, and again, I'll link to it in the show notes, but you had some quick comment and you guys just kind of moved on right away. But you were talking about fingerboarding. And I think you said, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said you were talking about fingertip pull-ups. And you said it's the one thing that you still think matters that no one else is doing. Well, I don't know about nobody else doing it. I think it's going to become something that more and more people are doing. Yeah. And I think what... Well, okay, there's, there's two different things. So we want to distinguish two things because you can mean two different things. Mm-hmm. One thing is hanging off your fingers and doing pull-ups that are weighted. Yes. Yes. And do, I do that. And everybody tells you you're not supposed to do it and it's not that helpful because you're just doing pull-ups. I disagree. Why? I think I think generating that force to get up... Uh-huh. Pulling up through it and then generating the force to slow down and stop and then switch it back, going back up, that concentric movement and going up and down like that with mm-hmm. that much strain on your fingers is actually a good way to develop finger strength. Hmm. And it's a good way to develop pulling on something that's pretty small with quite a bit of resistance. Like a slight oscillating force load yeah, on your fingers. Exactly. Interesting. The other thing I thought maybe, I misunderstood, I thought maybe what you're referring to is where you're literally closing an open hand grip into a kind of closed hand grip Mm -hmm. while you're hanging off of like a campus rung or campus edge or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also extremely beneficial. So those are called, I guess they're called finger ups. 
Okay. Maybe. Yeah. And I, I said, Neely, I think there's a video of Daniel Woods doing this in one of the videos. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I'll find it, yeah. And I believe that uh, it's dicey, you know, it's probably, you, you may get an injury from doing it, but I believe that if you can get in the habit of doing that kind of thing, it's going to be beneficial. Okay. I think that the idea that, well, you should just hang off your fingers and not move move them, it doesn't really happen when you're climbing. Right? Yeah. If you're dynoing to something and you're going to try to latch it and then reel it into a closed cramp, you got to pull up on that. Hmm. So your fingers are moving <clears throat> when you're holding on. So I think it's a good idea to do that kind of motion as well, even if you have to take weight off to do it. Hmm. So for listeners, the finger up in the video that you're referring with Daniel, I think he's like kind of in a half crimp position. Yeah. And then he his arms are extended the whole time, his shoulders are engaged, and he reels the half crimp into a full crimp. Yeah. And then backs off again and just does yeah, exactly. reps of that. Just does reps of that. Yeah. And I don't think your fingers have to move all that much. Right. Maybe half an inch or something like that is really all you need to do. Yeah. But pulling yourself up like that by your fingers is, I think, beneficial for your finger strength. Mm-hmm without a doubt, and your hand strength. It's interesting with the fingertip pull-ups too, where you're hanging on a fingertip edge and you're doing regular pull-ups or weighted pull-ups. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting because there's some, there's a few coaches that I've heard advocate for really long duration hangs mm-hmm. for tendon density. I think Tyler Nelson talks about that. Okay, And that's something that a lot of climbers did on door jams and whatnot, yep. you know, a long time exactly. ago. And it's a much longer duration hang when you're pumping out. Sure. 10 pull-ups on a on an edge than we typically hang from so i kind of wonder it, yeah it's, it i seems believe like it makes that. sense from yeah that. i would have one where i would try to hang for 40 on 30 off oh wow on, a, on like a 13 millimeter edge uh-huh i'm doing one now where i'm hanging off the 10 millimeter edge off of uh, there's a board that has all the different edges and they're marked it's not the lattice wrong it's the uh tension climbing tension climbing yeah exactly uh-huh. and they have a 10 millimeter edge and i'm trying to see how long i can hang off of that okay and uh, just like in a half crimp position. Okay. So yeah, I think there's something to be said for just hanging. Yeah. As long as you don't develop shoulder problems and you know, you gotta engage a little bit, but uh, yeah, if nothing else, you get the ability to hang on for a longer period of time. So are you doing all of these things or do you, how do you think about cycling these things in and out? Do you do whichever ones you feel like you need at a given time or? I'll do all these things Uh as part of my fingerboard routine. Like the other day before I saw you at refuge, I'd probably been training about four hours in the garage. (laughs) Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times I'll do about a three hour, four hour fingerboard workout and then I'll go get on the moon board. And when I was working jumbo, I was trying to do four by fours on the moon board. Uh Just kind of swipe through real quickly and jump right back on another one. So I'll do like an hour and a half on the moon board. I think the moon board's really pretty good for building finger strength. It's really good mm-hmm. for power. But I think any of these other boards that are similar also are good. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get on the machine and I'll be doing more endurance training than on the machine. Mm-hmm. On the treadmill. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Gotcha. So you've traveled a lot. You said you were kind of, you feel privileged that you're able to kind of be a local at six different areas. And yeah. I know you, you know, Smith is in that, on that list, Rifle, The Red, now Vegas. Yeah, right. Um, I spent time in Utah, in Salt Lake. Okay. I, took, I did a sabbatical there. So I had a season, I had a couple seasons at American Fork uh-huh. and Maple. And so, yeah. So I feel, I feel really fortunate in that way because these are all different communities. They're kind of slightly different personalities. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of neat to go to these different areas and kind of see how people are doing things a little bit different, different outlooks, different attitudes. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, obviously. Yeah. There's just slight differences in different ways in which people approach climbing. Some places are a little more bouldering intense. Some people a little more route intense. Some people like to just do everything that's available in these mm. different areas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's kind of neat to kind of get a sense of the different personalities of these different climbing 
communities. I'd love to ask you about some of the trends that that you may have noticed. Are you noticing any trends among the people that are really succeeding and doing well between these different areas? Yeah, I think that uh, they're getting younger and younger. (laughs) That's one trend. (laughs) There's a lot more of them now. It seems like everybody's climbing really hard right now. (laughs) And there is this focus on training that didn't used to be there. Or it was there, but it's just people are just taking a lot more seriously now. Uh-huh. And I would say that's kind of universal. What about tactical approaches and things like that? Yeah, I think in some areas, people are more focused on projects and doing big projects. Mm-hmm. Whereas in other areas, people just want to go do quick ticks of things. Mm-hmm. And you'll get variation within the community. Different individuals have different agendas. But, you know, certainly Rifle, for example, I tend to think of as a very project-oriented cliff. Some people just want to go out and do some climbs. But a lot of people are there, especially in the summertime. Mm-hmm. They're trying to do their hardest red point. Or they're trying to, they've got some big project they want to do this summer. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of more of a project-oriented cliff. Whereas I feel like at Red Rocks, <clears throat> it's much more of a vacation cliff. Mm-hmm. People are passing through. People are coming in to have a good time in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And so there's locals out there doing things, but you're much more likely to bump into an outsider, somebody from another part of the country at Red Rocks and a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. I think the Red has also got a mixture of folks. There's a big trad community at the Red a lot of people don't even know about. They're right. It's a huge trad community, but there's also a lot of people there who are projecting, trying to do have a big project. But there's a number of people who just want to go out and have fun, you mm-hmm. know, and just on-site everything they get on, basically. So that's kind of, there's a little bit of variation between different approaches to climbing that exist in that way. I just listened to a conversation that you had on the normal cast with Uh with Chris Kalus. Or no, I'm sorry. I listened to one that you had with Chris Hampton on the power company. Right. Okay. Right. And I was actually, you've kind of got this reputation for some of these massive projects that, you know, 200 tries or 100 tries or whatever. But I was really surprised to hear how much... How much time you've spent developing and growing your root pyramid? You you actually yeah. have done a ton of five thirteens. Yeah, and you do a lot more of that than I would have guessed. Yeah, I mean, so I. How do you think about balancing those things? And and I guess when you think about you know rifle with more project climbing versus some of these other areas, yeah, how do you think about? I think you cycle through different phases. I think that um, <clears throat> I go through phases where I'm just wanting to have fun. You know, I just want to get a I want to get a bunch of ticks done this summer. I want to don't really spend, want to spend more than maybe four or five days on a project. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm doing stuff pretty quickly. And um, if I'm fit, it can still be pretty hard. I think I had one summer where I was doing a 13D like every two weeks or so. Oh, that's awesome. But uh, I'm not I'm anywhere near that kind of shape anymore. And I feel like I go through a phase where I'm just like, hey, I want to go and have a good time. And basically, I'm not really want to throw myself at something. But then at the same time, every now and then, that gets a little bit boring. Mm-hmm. And you don't really feel like it's sufficiently challenging and you really want to test yourself. You really want to see if you can do something that's really going to push you hard. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting process to go through as well. Yeah. And I think I've been doing it a little bit more lately because I feel like my time's running out. And so if there's some great climbs out there, I, I need to do it. And of course, that's how I felt about jumbo pumping hate. It's yeah. such a beautiful route and it's such a classic climb that I'm like, eh, you better get at it if you're going to try to do this thing. Do you know how many tries that took you? Nah, I was figuring it up with Chris Widener the other day. I, probably, it depends on what you count as a try. Because, I mean, so early on in the process, you're just getting on it, checking things out, you're trying different things. Sure. That's not really a try. How many times I touched the route? Probably well over 100. Uh-huh. But, you know, I mean, real tries, I don't know. It'd be hard to say. I'd have to think about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot. It was taking some time. I think I really put about two and a half hard seasons on it. Okay. 
And uh, Wait, are really you trying three, any, actually? I are guess. you trying anything else at the same time? Do you have second tier projects? Not or? really. No. Okay. I'm all in on that thing. Yeah. I was all in on it. I was trying to climb another route up there, but I just thought, no, nah, this is too much effort. Uh, and is it's that tagging my skin up? So it's like I just, I'm just gonna. I would do it as part of the warm up, <clears throat> mm. but I was just like, eh, I'm just gonna focus on this thing. Okay. Is that pretty common when you're trying like yeah. an A or B? Yeah, I'm just, trying to just to focus on that for yeah. the most part. Okay. I don't know if that's a good idea. I think a lot of times it's good to have sub-projects that you can do, get on at the end of the day. I think that makes sense. Okay. I know a lot of people do that. But I would often be trying my project still at the end of the day mm. on some things. So. And then you come back down and train. Yeah, exactly. I'll <laughs> yeah. just go train. Yeah. And I'll do the other, you know, the easier 513s sometime later in my career or whatever. <laughs> but I, I'll go through those phases where I'm kind of, at some phase, I'm kind of having a good time just trying to tick a bunch of stuff off. And other times it's like, okay. Now I want to see what I'm capable of. Hmm. And I know this thing. There's a really good chance I'm going to fail. There's a really good chance I'm not going to do it. Hmm. Honestly, I didn't think I had any shot at jumbo pumping hate. Really? Yeah. The day I did it, there, I thought, my goal is to have a good try-hard day. And the yeah. season was coming to an end. I'd kind of given up. I knew I was going to have hip surgery. So I thought, you know what? I put in, I put in a good effort on this thing. I feel pretty good about my effort. But this is, this is going to be the, my final fail, basically. So you mean not just that day. You didn't think you were going to do it at all. Towards, by the time the spring rolled around, I was getting sufficiently dissatisfied with my progress on the route. I just kept falling on this first crux. Uh-huh. I was pretty skeptical. And I didn't think I was. And I thought, man, that, then the second crux is really hard, too. Mm-hmm. But then I tweaked my beta a little bit, and all of a sudden the first crux started feeling easier. And um, and then this this day, I just got to the first crux, got to the rest. Really tormented myself with the rest because it's just the way you can rest is you can get a heel hook. Mm-hmm. But the heel hook is with the hip that was going bad, and it was just excruciatingly painful. But I'm like, you know what? Here I am. What the hell? Pain is pain. Just shake it out. Spend longer here than you want to, than you think you need to. I did, and then the second crux felt pretty good. Wow. And I just went to the anchors and I'm like, holy crap, did that just happen? Oh, man. It was amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. But I do like that process. I enjoy big projects. I'll have to say it's pretty damn similar to working in philosophy. Okay. When I'm working on a paper or I'm working on a book, there'll be things that I want to tinker with and I want to play around with things and I want to try something new. I'm going to develop this argument this way. I'm going to come up with this example over here and I'll go back to it a lot and I'll, it'll take time. You know, probably the papers I write to get published, they're probably 15 drafts or something like that. Hmm. So I'm always going back and playing around with things and tinkering with things and trying to improve it. And uh, I don't mind that process. I find that really quite enjoyable. Hmm. I have an analytic mind and I really like problem solving and so getting on something that's really going to challenge me as a route where I have to go back to it and try different things and think about maybe this is the wrong sequence here. I don't mind that process. I find that really enjoyable. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of climbers do. Yeah. I think that the kind of climbers who are successful, who can stick with it, they're the kind of people who enjoy that problem solving with their body. Mm-hmm. I always say that climbers are basically nerds trapped in an athlete's body. <laughs> right? That's why there's so many of them are engineers and physicists and mathematicians and yeah, philosophers. And basically it's because to enjoy this activity, you have to enjoy that problem solving process. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's neat. That resonates with me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've heard you say, speaking to the nuance of routes, I've heard you say that, you know, these routes have all these secrets. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I've really kind of come to appreciate that in the second half of my career where I think I've understood this thing. I think I've got the beta all worked out. I know Uh there's no other tweak I can do that's going to be a little more efficient. 
And I'll just think, well, maybe I'll try this, or I don't know, and I'll maybe, and nine out of 10, it's like evolution, right? Nine out of 10 of the mutations are worthless, but then every now and then you get one that is definitely gonna give you an advantage. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, that actually seems to help. It's like I tweak my beta, climbing into the crux of Jumbo. The other people had been doing it this other way. And the guy I was working on with, Nate, who's like, yeah, you should try it this way. And I and originally tried it this the way most people do it, and I just wasn't strong enough at that time. But I tried it probably about a week before I did it, the way most people do it. And I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. And moreover, that cuts out three moves. Hmm. So that made a huge difference for me getting through that first crux. Mm -hmm. So yes, climbs, it's like a video game. You know, there's all these little Easter eggs. And there's all these little, hmm. there's all these little secrets. And you have to interrogate them to get them to talk. They want to hide <laughs> them, their secrets from you. Uh -huh. And you have to ask the right questions in the right way. And, uh, and that means continually trying different things, thinking about how you can make things more efficient. I always tell people there's this great scene in this movie, I think it's Apollo 11, uh -huh. or Apollo, Apollo one of the 13. Apollo modes. Yeah, well, the one with Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to figure out this engineering problem where how do we start up these engines in a manner that doesn't use up the energy that we're gonna need to get them back to Earth. Mm -hmm. And they're going through all these different sequences. This is the absolute most efficient way to start up these, these engines in the, in the simulator. And they're trying all these different things, all these different things, and all of a sudden they come, okay, we finally found the perfect sequence for gearing up these, these engines in a way such that we're gonna save all this energy and it's gonna work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what goes on in climbing, hmm. where you work on a project and you're trying to figure out the exact sequence that's gonna be the absolutely most efficient way for, you, for me to get from point A to point B so that when you get to point C, you're gonna have that residual strength that's just enough to get you through that move. Mm -hmm. Working through that process and working through that whole intellectual kind of interrogation of the route and trying to discover all these little hidden secrets, I find really fascinating and really enjoyable. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more on, on this other level, though, because one thing that I've really struggled with, I've spent a lot of time climbing at Smith, mm -hmm. and that's a place where you're greatly rewarded by exploring nuance. You yeah, know? Like sure. some subtle little thing will make the route easier. But I fall into this trap quite often where I don't know when to stop doing that and when to just turn all that off and just to try harder. Yeah. And it can be really difficult to even tell which version or which beta is easier or harder because it's it's difficult to commit fully to something that you're just kind of tinkering with. So how do you think about... Uh, I don't see those as mutually that? exclusive. Okay. Uh, I think if I'm going to try something new, I'm going to be trying my absolute hardest. Mm. Trying this new thing. I'm not going up there just, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm curious how this is going to feel, but I am trying hard. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't work then I'm going to be hanging on a, like a good old hangdog, you know, yeah. and trying to find something else that might work. Uh -huh. But I think when you're implementing a particular new piece of beta, you should be giving it everything you have. You should be going 100%. Hmm. And that should kind of be the norm. I mean, I feel like every time you go up on a project, you should maybe have some little slight thing you're going to try that's new. So that it's going to be informative for you. Hmm. So you're going to still be finding something out. Because otherwise it just becomes work. Mm -hmm. So... I've often sent projects where that go, I tried something a little bit different. Huh. I'm not talking about a huge modification of the beta because by the time you get to your 80th try, right. you pretty much got it worked out. It's <laughs> right, just yeah. these slight little tweaks that again are going to... How you place a foot. Yeah, or... I mean, okay, so like each little piece of beta, let's suppose that saves you one third of a percentage of energy. Mm -hmm. Well, you do four or five of those, that's almost 2% stronger now when you get to... A particular point in the climb that's huge mm -hmm. that can make all the difference in the world between success and failure 
So, you know, if you add up enough of those little teeny slight variations that give you a fifth of a percent mm -hmm. or a third of a percent, you add up enough of those and you're 5% stronger after a week of trying those sorts of things. Yeah. But I do believe that there's a lot to be said for just freaking trying really hard. Yeah. And I think what I got to is a point where, I mean, of course, this is soul crushing activity. You're, you're trying your hardest and you're failing and you're falling and you're really frustrated. And so you're often looking for ways to make it a little bit more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And um, if it's just work and you're just going up there and, you know, going through the grind, that's not so much fun. And I found one of the ways in which failing isn't so bad is if you can feel pretty good about your performance. Hmm. So there were times when I would be trying to do some of these hard routes and I would be like, wow, I fell. But you know what? I left everything on that route, on that burn. Hmm. I gave it everything I had. And so I kind of then feel pretty good about that. Yeah. I feel much worse if I did something and I made a stupid mistake or I just kind of gave up. I'm like, ah, this isn't going to work. I'm just going to let go. Hmm. I tend to think that's, that's lame. I mean, sometimes that makes sense, especially if you're looking at a bad fall or something. But, but a lot of times I feel like you can just feel pretty good about your day if you feel like you really, really, really tried hard. Hmm. And so that would kind of be part of the, what I was trying to incorporate in every single attempt. And what I discovered is if you're really trying hard, guess what? Sometimes you can surprise yourself and you pull it off. Huh. So uh, I'm a big believer in trying hard every single time. Cool. So I was asking you if you've done quite a bit of writing. You put out some books. And I was asking if any of the stuff you've written would be interesting to me, to someone who has. Uh, <laughs> probably study. not, given the feedback I've gotten from most of my <laughs> climbing friends. They're like, wow, I didn't understand a word of that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's very academic. It's pretty academic. My book especially is really, it's a very niche, kind of narrow area of cognitive science focused on the viability of cognitive representations in the brain and just kind of like... Just to explain what that means, it's going to take another hour, basically. It's a huge area in the field that I work in. It's a very important area where philosophy and cognitive science intersect. Okay. And it's been a project that people, some of the smartest people in this field have been working on for about 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of weighing in on that, basically. Okay. There are other papers that I have that are probably more accessible in philosophy. I wrote a paper on religious bigotry once huh. about what religious bigotry is and what it isn't, more importantly. Huh. And I basically argue that even ridicule or mocking of belief systems shouldn't be viewed as a form of bigotry, that you can only be bigoted against people and not belief systems. Hmm. But anyhow, um, that's, that's a, we can link to that paper if you want. Um, okay. But I, I have written a couple things in climbing. There was a notorious paper essay I wrote that was published in Rock and Ice a few years ago where I defended chipping. Oh, yeah. I've heard yeah, of this. Yeah. I haven't read and, it. Um, I'll link to it, though. Yeah, that was good fun. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, I, you know, I got a lot of hostile feedback on that, but it's pretty good. And uh, generally speaking, it's when the case of manufacturing, the reality is that it's kind of this little hidden secret that everybody kind of pretends no one does it. Mm. And when you get up through the higher grades, especially on limestone, pretty much everybody does it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with all this controversy that just took place in 10 sleep, mm -hmm. I think the main thing is you want some degree of plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that the holds are being modified, let's face it, because it's, a lot of this stuff is choss and you got to decide what you're going to keep and what you're going to get rid of. Yeah. And so it's almost unavoidable if you're going to clean these routes to do some quasi manufacturing, gluing, you know, kind of modification of the hold and determining what you're going to leave and what you're not going to leave. 
And so it happens, and everybody kind of pretends it doesn't, but really, once you get above 514 on most limestone, especially in America, I think it's very, very, very rare you find a route that's entirely natural. Hmm. I'd say the overwhelming majority of them have some kind of modification that goes on. Mm-hmm. So what you want to avoid is just the over-the-top stuff where you just, you know, oh my God, this is a blatant pocket just drilled right into the blank wall. You know, yeah. you might try to avoid that as much as possible. It's ugly and it detracts from the route. But I do believe that if we're going to be realistic and sort of appreciate the accomplishments of all these people who have put up these climbs that we climb on, we need to be a little more honest about what actually happens. Mm-hmm. Let's not go over the top. But let's just recognize that route development is route development. And, you know, some of these, I mean, if you've been to the Wicked Cave in Rifle uh-huh. or you've been up to Potosi or any of these places, it's just, it's pretty Climbed clear. Anything at Smith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's pretty clear. And so let's just kind of stop pretending and um, recognize what's really going on. That's cool. All. Yeah. I'll yeah. have to go read that. Yeah. And I wrote, uh, I wrote that thing for Andrew Bisharat's website that I really, really enjoyed. So he has this website called Evening Sends. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this essay about sending golden. It's in mm. his a- a section called The Day I Sent. Yeah. And I really enjoyed writing that because mm. it was kind of my homage to the climbing world, basically. Okay. And yeah, take a look at that. I think you'll get a kick out of that. Yeah, I'll I really, that I really put some effort into that and I really felt good about how it came out. Cool. And I got really, a lot of really good positive feedback about it, too. Yeah. So yeah, that's one thing I've written that I'm really pretty proud of. Awesome. Yeah. Do you have any more plans for writing? Along yeah, I those might. Lines? Maybe um, down the road, you know. Probably thinking in a while here, I'm going to probably back off and do like a partial retirement. And I might consider doing more writing then, the, the fun sort and not the work sort. Awesome. So, yeah, I really like writing and the kind of writing that uh, there's so many good writers now uh, in the climbing world. It seems to me there's just an explosion of good, good writers. Mm-hmm. But insofar as I can make a contribution in that way, that would be really fun. Hmm. Yeah. Great. I wrote the foreword, actually, to Alan's uh, new guidebook, The Next Edition. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I enjoyed writing that. I tried to capture I'm some of the things that, that I think are really unique about Alan and unique about Smith Rock. Cool. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I'm looking forward to that. Is there anything that you are especially grateful for lately? Uh, yeah, I'm grateful that climbing has been a big part of my life. Huh. It's been really a huge part of my life. I feel, again, lucky that I've been pretty healthy. I mean, I just recently had surgery, and that's maybe taking a little longer to heal up than I had thought, but uh, it's coming along. But it's just been such a—I really feel incredibly fortunate. You know, as a kid, I think I looked ahead in my life, and we all sort of have this image. I know Alan kind of talks about what he wanted to do. And I think for me, I thought a really good life would be a life where I'm both a scholar and an athlete. Hmm. Like, that would be really rewarding. And so that's really what I've tried to do. I've tried to live a life where I can excel at two completely unrelated things and be pretty good at them. Not the best, but pretty good at them and kind of have an international reputation in both. And that's really kind of fun. That's really kind of cool. Hmm. And I feel really, really lucky to have had that, that kind of experience. And also, you know, these are two areas, academia, philosophy on the one hand and climbing on the other hand, where you just meet really, really good people, Hmm. really, really decent, really good, good people. And so I feel like I've been really lucky in that regard. I feel like both of those communities, I I feel really fortunate to be members of both of those communities. Hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. 
I, I feel pretty fortunate that way. Is there, I'm curious, is there crossover there, you think, or lessons that you're learning from your climbing, crossing over into Yeah, definitely. Just what I was saying earlier about this whole way you approach projecting. Like yeah. I have my philosophy projects uh -huh. that I'm working on. I'm working on a chapter for a book right now, uh -huh. somebody else's book. But, um, and then I have my climbing projects. And like I say, there's a lot of similarity between those two where you fiddle around with things and you try things and you see how it comes together and eventually you get something that you really feel happy about. Hmm. And I think it's pretty similar in both those areas and both those fields. I think that climbing's taught me perseverance and you know the importance of hard work and that applies in philosophy and philosophy's taught me how to analytically try to go after problems and that, that's helped me in climbing. So hmm. yeah, there's a lot of crossover there. Cool. Yeah. So I was just, uh, I just did an interview with Mike Doyle. Yeah. And we got talking. Mike's one of those really great guys too, by the way. He's amazing. Yeah. He's a really, really good person. And uh, I think, I don't, I don't even remember if it was recorded. I think it might've been after the interview, but we <laughs> right. were kind of talking about the lore of climbing and, and he almost wants to start like a, a show, like the truth and lies of, of climbing. <laughs> right. Because there's all these stories that come out and it's like, did that really happen? You know? Oh yeah. So I'm sure. he mentioned one that I wanted to run by you to see okay. if it's actually true. So. The story is that you went to Yosemite and climbed separate reality. I don't know when this would have been. This might have been early 80s. Yeah, like this was in 19... Actually, it was the year I did Half Dome, so it was 1979. 79, okay. Yeah. So that part of it is true. And then the story goes that it was reported as Alan Watts climbing it because yeah. it was just some climber from Madras. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. Because Alan, I think Alan had said, yeah, somebody came up to me and said, man, that's awesome you did separate reality. I'm like, what? Yeah. Well, what happened, and I talk a little bit about this in that, in that golden essay, is I was down there and I climbed Half Dome and I was a really... I mean, Alan kind of talks, I was a pretty cocky kid. Hmm. I mean, he talks about me being a little more aggressive. I think the right word to be, I was pretty cocky. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went to Yosemite and, like, and I'd seen this cover of Mountain Magazine. It's amazing how much of climbing history is driven by covers of Mountain Magazine. But uh, I'd seen this cover of Ray Jardine on it. And Alan is like, wow, look at this. This is incredible. And I'm like, wow, that really is incredible. And I thought, yeah, it looks like mostly a hand, a hand crack, and I'm pretty good at hand jamming. I should go try to do that. Mm. You know, I'd never been on a 512 in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd probably done some 11s, maybe some hard 11s, but I'd never been on anything that had been. I mean, 512 was brand new then. Mm -hmm. It's just coming into existence. So I, I got a couple of friends together, and I was probably pretty light because I'd just done Half Dome, and I just had an epic three days on Half Dome, <laughs> and that's another story in itself. But uh, I was probably pretty light, and I went there, and I got out on it, and I placed all the gear on lead, and kind of did a little hangdogging on it, fell off a few times, but pulled back up and could kind of like see the moves and kind of see how it was possible. And then I lowered down, and then this rope appears, because you have to wrap down into it. Mm -hmm. And then who should appear but you know, one of the gods himself, Tony Yanero. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, holy crap, this is Tony Yanero. And then another guy, uh, I think his name was Eric Collins, who had okay. just done um, one of the hard routes in Colorado. He was kind of considered the top Colorado climber. He appears. And then Bill Price pokes his head under <laughs> over the roof. I'm like, oh my God, I'm with all these superstars. And I'm just this punk kid from Madras <laughs> who's here to try to do this ridiculous climb. I'm really out of my league. I really don't belong. And I was all apologetic. I'm like, hey guys, look, I'll, I'll give it another try. And I'll, when I fall, I'll just clean it and you can have it all to yourselves. And actually, Yanero was really cool about it. He's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. That's fine. He'd already done it. He wanted to get Collins on it. Mm. And so I, you know, super nervous and I just tied in and I just freaking did it. <laughs> I just <laughs> climbed awesome. it. That's awesome. Yeah. 
I think I may have I think I may have had the rope partly clipped in, so it's kind of probably more technically like a yo-yo ascent or something. I can't remember. Do you but think I, it was, was it having them there? I don't know. I think it was having them there, wanting to be uh, being super self-conscious about climbing really well, and uh-huh. looking good, yeah, and also probably a lot of adrenaline pumping at the time. Sure. And like I said, I was probably I mean I was a pretty strong climber then. I just uh-huh. didn't realize it because I didn't we didn't think we were anywhere near that kind of grade. Yeah. So I did that, and I'm just like, holy shit, did I just pull that off? And Bill Price comes over and shakes my hand, and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. And then I remember going back and telling Alan, I'm like, you know, we're not that bad. Mm. Um, We are not that far off from those guys. Oh, that's cool. Because Alan, at that time, I think, was climbing better than me. I mean, I think he was getting stronger. Maybe not in 79, but certainly in the 80s. But Mm -hmm. I'm just like, you know, where? Because we had, as he said, we had this huge inferiority complex. We were just these punks in this crappy little place in central Oregon. It was beautiful. Yeah. But I mean, let's face it, there aren't that many climbs. And and Yosemite is Mecca. Yeah. And these are the, you know, the priests, basically, of Mecca. And so when I did that thing, I came back and I'm like, you know, we're not that far behind. But then I think people asked me my name, I'm sure. I just said, oh, yeah, we're from Oregon. (laughs) And then everybody just assumed... When they started hearing about Alan two or three late, two or three years later, yeah. everybody just assumed it was Alan who'd done that. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was me. Oh, but, how many uh, climbers near the top could be coming out of Madras? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I know. It's pretty funny. So separate reality, what, that's 12A, like the quintessential. It was at that time. The lip fell off. The lip fell off. Mm. And then I, maybe, I think for a while it was 11D. Maybe they're calling it 12A now again. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it was a little harder back in those days because I think there's another three feet to the lip or something. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It actually literally fell off like two winters later. Wow. Yeah, a little freeze thaw there knocked it off. Do you remember like what this, you said you weren't that far off. What was the standard at that time in Yosemite? 512. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there might have been some 12 Cs or something like that. I don't know if the Phoenix had been done just yet. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the early 512s that Jardine had done. Mm-hmm. But that was definitely, there weren't any 513s at that time. Cool. As far as I know. Yeah. And so at that time, certainly in 79, that was the top level. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So in prep for this, I reached out to Alan to, okay, to ask cool, him if nice. there's anything I should ask you about. And he didn't really have any, like, you know, I was kind of hoping for an embarrassing story or something. Yeah, he didn't yeah, really I'm have sure anything. He has plenty. But he shot me this message back, and I thought I would read it. Okay. He wrote, Bill had a tremendous impact on my climbing. He was the single most important person I ever met in my climbing career. Without him, I wouldn't have done much. But to some degree, I had an influence on him as well. We both fed off each other's energy. It clicked with both of us in a way not possible on our own. That's very kind of him to say that. Um, I certainly agree with him that we pushed each other, but I think he's probably giving me a little too much credit. Um, he was pretty damn driven and pretty damn motivated. Uh-huh. Whereas from my perspective, I mean, I learned to climb with my father. I'd done some things, but basically then in terms of the level of climbing we were doing at Smith, he taught me all that. I mean, mm. he took me out. He showed me how to place how to place hexes and, you know, basically the ropes. Mm. And so he's the one who really, really pretty much got me fully into climbing once I started going out to Smith on a regular basis. Mm. So the influence on me was is, has been tremendous. You know, he's just one of these people that I feel so lucky to have known and to been climbing with him at that time and to play whatever role I could play yeah. in terms of pushing him a little bit. But I mean, he's a pretty self-motivating individual <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, he did everything. Let's face it. The reality is he's the one who really changed the game, changed the nature of the sport. And he did all that after I left. Mm. So he's being generous there, basically. <laughs> it but, is. but I do feel really like that's a very, very interesting and fortunate and lucky 
relationship that he and I had. And I, I still consider him one of my best friends. But the kind of combination where Chris Jones and Alan Lester, we all sort of came together at the same time. And it was just one of those unique times when just the right people coming together. I think you could say the same thing maybe about Joe Kinder and Dave Graham mm. and Luke Parody mm-hmm. in New England. You're like, what? All this, yeah, that all of these three just had the same drive and they pushed each other in the same way. Mm. That happens every now and then in climbing. And it yeah. certainly happened in Oregon at that time. And it, and it did kind of change the nature of the sport. And so I just feel really, really fortunate that I was a part of that. It is so interesting to see what Alan did at Smith and then what you did at the Red and, and right. how how parallel and yet different those two paths yeah, are. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I feel a little bit kind of like Forrest Gump. I mean, I've been there at many historical moments. Um, uh, you know, I was there when Katie Brown on site at Omaha Beach and... You know, I started climbing with Alex Holland in 2005. He and I did the Moonlight Buttress together. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, and so awesome. I just, I've, been, I've been lucky that my path has kind of gone through in such a way where I've met all these great people like Todd Skinner and John Backer and these folks and everybody like that. So I just feel lucky that it's been this amazing journey huh. and it's had all these interesting twists and turns in all these different areas over the years. Hmm. So, yeah, I've been very fortunate. Well, Alan really wants to get the three of us together. Oh, that'd be to, awesome. To that'd it. be really fun. That'd be really good. And we, <laughs> I told him I'd, then we can tell stories about each other. I try not to botch this, so I <laughs> maximize the chance. Oh, of that'd be great. That I'd really enjoy that. That'd awesome. Be fun. I'll uh, I'll have to stay in touch and make sure I uh, great very drive good. up to Oregon whenever you're going to be up there next. So. That'd be great. Awesome. We'll make it happen. Well, thanks so much. Bro. Very much. I very much enjoyed chat- chatting. It's been yeah. really fun. It's been super fun to be here. Yeah, I'm, and I'm I hope you're enjoying for, your time here. For the rock to dry out. Yeah. But I feel very welcomed. And um, yeah, yeah, I think as so a, I think we said the other night, like, this is a good climbing community here too. It's cool. Good group of people here. So it is. Really it really like is. It I feel that. Yeah. So. Nice. All awesome. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Cheers. Very good. Like we do it.